0: My debt is paid and the victory won. That's good news. Because the Lord is our salvation. As we prepare our hearts to hear from his word, we uh, keenly remember that the things of God are spiritually discerned, which means we need some help. So let's, uh, let's go to the Lord and ask him. Guide us by the power of His Spirit and grow us in truth. Father, we, we come before you now and we, uh, we just pause and revel at the great salvation that you've given us. We hurry through so much of life, Father, and uh, this morning we just want to pause and consider. The weight of joy, the power of eternal freedom, the purpose which you have led us to forever. And we want to say thank you, Lord. Indeed, our salvation is very great in Christ. So now, as we um, turn to your word As we see your example, Jesus, we pray that your spirit would guide us into truth and grow us up deeply in it. It's in your name we ask. Amen. Well, this morning I'd like to start with a picture and a question. Here's the picture. Perhaps some of you have seen it before. Uh, Check out that lady in the middle. Here's my question. Why is this roller coaster picture so ridiculous well the reason why this picture is just a bit preposterous is because the response does not match the event again i mean i helped you out with an arrow here maybe you need a little jolt this morning (laughs) look at that woman's face i mean she is careening downward at ridiculous speeds very high velocity and she's completely unfazed. She's even slightly annoyed, I think. <laughs> Depending upon your definition of slightly, she might be greatly annoyed. Now, I, I'm not sure if you can make it out from where you're seated, but the couple's faces behind her are a little more appropriate, I think. I mean, that guy's like, yeah, bring it on. <laughs> Lady next to him is like, no, make it Stop. There is a more appropriate response typically to a roller coaster ride. Mine is typically something like that. Your cheeks are flapping in the air. Uh, or perhaps more like this uh, occasionally. <laughs> that, little, that little boy is priceless. Well, today, as we finish out Luke chapter 7, we're going to see a right response to Jesus laid side by side against this. Against someone who misses the whole point. Take your Bibles if you haven't already, and turn with me please to Luke seven, verse thirty six. If you're using our church Bible, that's on page eight hundred eleven, right at the very bottom of page eight hundred eleven, Luke chapter seven, we'll read beginning in verse thirty six through the end of chapter seven and into the very beginning of chapter eight. This is the word of the Lord. Luke seven thirty six. One of the Pharisees asked him, meaning Jesus, to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears." Wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him, for she's a sinner. And Jesus, answering him, said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. He answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then... Turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet With ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. And those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Soon afterward, he went on through the cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve who were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and uh, for, excuse me, infirmities, easy for me to say, Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna and many others who provided for them out of their means. All right, we'll stop there for this morning. Let's take a moment to set the table, if you will, so we can better understand this amazing table scene that we've just heard here in the end of Luke 7. The account begins in verse 36 with Simon the Pharisee inviting Jesus to eat with him. And we see this interesting phrase. that almost sounds a bit clunky to us in English today. Reclined at table. They reclined at table. I, I think it's helpful to have a, a mental picture of what's happening here uh, because if you're picturing like a table like we would eat at one today, you've, you've got the whole visual picture wrong. You see, in this day and age, there would have been a table, like we eat at a a table, a place where the food would be served. Uh, And uh, again, this is just an artist's depiction, but it gives you the sense, uh, what would happen customarily is that they would lean on their left elbows over a low table near the ground and their feet would be stretching away from the meal. Always a good policy for your feet to be as far away from your food as possible. So, so it makes a little bit more sense then what's, what's happening. You got a better mental picture? Uh, it it kind of works spatially then when the woman was coming up from behind him. She was sort of behind at a, at a posture of humility near his feet. Does that make a little bit more sense? It's also worth noting that we should not confuse this account with the event at the house of Simon, another Simon the leper. Lots of Simons in the Bible. Simon Peter, Simon the leopard, Simon the Pharisee, common name. But this is not the account at another Simon's house, Simon the leopard, which happened, uh, excuse me, leper, not leopard. It'd be weird. <laughs> anyway, that, that event happens just days before Jesus' death with another woman, Mary of Bethany, who anoints Jesus' head for burial. It can be easy to confuse these two accounts. This other account is in Mark 14, Matthew 26, John 12, but they're different. This happens early in Jesus' ministry. He's at a Pharisee's house, not a leper's house. He, his feet are anointed rather than his head. So, so two different instances, if that helps you keep, keep those accounts straight. This, then, is a unique account to Luke's gospel. Let's look at verse 37 and 38. Now, I think that we understand the the table that's set for us, if you will. At this dinner scene, as it's unfolding, Luke, without wasting much time at all, hits us with an exclamation of both surprise and emotion. Look at verse 37 now. He uses the phrase, and behold. Now, when you see that word behold in Scripture, it echoes like a thunderclap. It's intended to flag for us surprise or shock at what's about to follow. Behold, Luke gets us ready. What's, what's so shocking, Dr. Luke? Well, he tells us a woman enters uninvited. Now, we don't get her name. That's interesting to me. Some have speculated that this is, in fact, Mary Magdalene, who we will hear about a little bit later in this passage, but there's really no biblical evidence to support that, so you know, speculate how you'd like to speculate. We, we just don't see any biblical evidence that this is indeed Mary. But we are told, whatever her name is, that she's a sinner. And not just any sinner, a big one. A sinner whose reputation had preceded her. Not once, Not twice, but three times we see in this brief text her introduced and labeled as such. The the narrator, Luke, introduces her as a sinner in verse 37. The Pharisee apparently knows that her sins, whatever they were, were quite public, and he identifies her as a sinner. In verse 39, it's common knowledge. And Jesus himself, as he's forgiving her, acknowledges that her sins are many verse 38, Luke also tells us that she's weeping. Now, what we're not talking about is a little bit of misting at the corners of her eyes. I want you to get the right picture here. We're talking about ugly crying. I mean, she's weeping. This is the same Greek term, which is also used elsewhere in scripture to describe rain showers, right? A lot of water coming from this woman's eyes. She is emotional. She is worked up such that as she's crying, she begins, I guess for lack of a towel, to wipe Jesus' wet feet with her own hair. This would have been a scandalous act, by the way, a a huge cultural taboo. In this day and age, it was shameful for a woman to let down her hair in public. As a matter of fact, according to the Talmud, a woman showing her hair to another man in public was grounds for divorce. Getting the picture here? This was a behold moment, right? Behold! Wow! She brings an alabaster flask of ointment, a costly treasure. And Here's the point. This act, this alabaster flask of anointing oil or ointment, the emotion, the, the act of humility she's not meeting jesus eye to eye she's at his feet the point is that this is an extravagant display love and affection we should notice it's curious to me this woman says nothing in the entire passage we never hear her speak not one word and yet her actions here speak louder than words do they not Look at verse 39, if you would. The first words that we do get in the passage are from Simon, but even those aren't out loud. We get Simon's inner dialogue. He says in verse 39 to himself, you know, if this Jesus were a prophet, he'd know all about this woman. He could see through this. I love what's going on here because... Scripture tells us that not only does Jesus know exactly who this woman is, we, we read in verse 47 again, he, he identifies her as a great sinner, he knows it. But he even knows what this guy, Simon, this Pharisee, is thinking within the privacy of his own mind. A prophet? Uh yeah. A perfect prophet. Did you catch this? He said to himself. Simon says to himself in verse 39. And then what happens in verse 40? Jesus, what's that word? Answered him. He's thinking in his own heart, in his own mind internally. And Jesus, knowing his thoughts, gives him an answer to them. You've probably heard the phrase before, I hear what you're saying. This is effectively Jesus saying, I hear what you're thinking. Just a super quick application here before we move on uh, in our story. If you're not aware, we should uh, take note here that Simon certainly wasn't fooling Jesus, and neither are you. Friend, (laughs) you're not fooling Jesus. You're never fooling Jesus. His eye sees, he knows you might have your parents fooled, teens, students. You might have your family or friends. You, you might even have your pastor fooled. It happens to me all the time. It's amazing. And the more, longer I'm in ministry, I just am getting used to it. People love to lie to their pastor. Friend, you might even have yourself fooled. We can do that, can't we? Lie to ourselves. Try to convince ourselves of what we desperately want. To be true, so we can do what we want. But make no mistake about it, Jesus doesn't just know your deeds, He knows your thoughts and the very intentions of your heart. So before we move forward, I think it would just be appropriate for us to be reminded that we ought to repent. Listen, He sees it anyway. You're not fooling Him, He knows. Repent. Remember that this Jesus, who saw every ounce of this woman's sin, gives her grace. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's your Christ. That's your Savior. There is grace for the sinner in the eyes of Jesus, for the sinner who comes to Him. Don't think, don't think you're fooling Him or getting away with anything. All right, let's keep combing through the passage together. Verse 40, uh, continuing through to verse 43, Jesus proceeds to tell Simon, answering what's in his own heart, a little parable. Look at verse 41. He says, listen, there's two debtors. One of them owed a sum total of 500 denarii. The other 50... If you're looking to scale this, right, some of you got a math brain and you need to know exactly how much money we're talking about, a denarius was approximately equivalent to one day's wages at this particular day. So 500 denarii is equivalent to about 20 months, almost two years worth of wages. Do the math. It's not a little bit of money, is it? Even the smaller figure, the guy who owed 50 denarii, that's two months' worth of wages. We're talking huge, almost two months, huge debts. One debt, though, I mean, just got to observe this, is astronomically higher than the other, right? Like, add a zero, multiplied times 10. The point here is plain, and Jesus wants Simon to see it. He asks him, Which of these two forgiven debtors will love the master more? Begrudgingly, Simon replies, I suppose the one who had the greater debt. Jesus agrees. And then he proceeds to explain that this woman at his feet has done what he has failed to do. You see, Simon the Pharisee has failed to extend even the basic common courtesy that would have been provided for honored guests at a home in this day. Common hospitality included providing water for one to wash their feet before a meal like this. Uh, Often oil was provided for uh, for moisturizing uh, someone's head in that hot Middle Eastern sun. A, A kiss would have been given to show affection or respect in greeting. Forget going out of his way to honor his guest, Jesus. Simon doesn't even extend him the common courtesy that was typical at the time. I like how one biblical commentator puts it. He said, Simon treated Jesus with arrogant indifference. But this woman, this sinful woman, she did everything and more that this neglectful host didn't do. She washes his feet with her very own tears, wiping them with her hair. She anoints his feet with oil. She she didn't even feel worthy to anoint his head. She showers him with affection and gratitude, kissing, it's in the continual tense, she keeps kissing his feet. Why such difference in their responses? Easy the The woman understood that she had a great debt that had been forgiven Simon mm, not so much I, uh, I think this is still true today. The spiritual principle that jesus was was trying to point simon 's cold, stony heart to understand if you understand, if you can see, if you have a sense for how much you've been forgiven in God's eyes. The fruit of that is gratitude. The fruit of that is, is thanksgiving. If you're not altogether sure that your sin is repugnant and deserving of hell and death in the eyes of a holy and perfect God, then, hey, eh, no one's Perfect. You know, pretty good guy. It's not going to generate that much gratitude now, is it? The climax of the account comes here. We see it signaled with the word, therefore. We see in verses 47 and 48. Let's, let's read this again so we can get the big idea. Jesus says, therefore, Simon, let me bottom line it for you, man. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. Why? For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Wow. I think what we see in this account is the overflowing love of a forgiven sinner on one hand, contrasted with the neglect of a self-righteous man on the other. And you show me the one who understands the depth of the forgiveness that they've been granted in Jesus. And I'll show you someone who loves Jesus greatly. Conversely, someone who fails to see the depths of their need for Christ, the the depths of the, the, the consequences of their sin, will look on Jesus with cool affection. To put it concisely, grace generates gratitude. You know that grace from God, unearned merit or favor, generates within us gratitude when it's seen rightly. Let's not misunderstand a few things. It can be easy uh, uh, when seeing these things in isolation to jump to some wrong conclusions. First, in verse 47, there's some things that Jesus is not saying. Here's what he's not saying first. He's not saying that her sins are forgiven because she loved much. It's what, what, what it might appear with his language, right? You've got to see these words from Jesus in their context. Remember what he's already told her. The parable of the forgiven debtors. Friends, when it, when it comes to spiritual matters of forgiveness and salvation, chronology matters. The timing matters. Her forgiveness of her debt came first. And then flowing out of that came love. Her affection for Jesus was a byproduct. It was a fruit of her forgiveness, not the cause of it. Jesus didn't say to this woman, man, this is remarkable. I can't believe all this good stuff you're doing for me. You know what? saved her good works of humility and honor did not garner her salvation her good works were a fruit they were an indicator if you will of the salvation she already had she had been forgiven kind of makes me wonder we don't see it in scripture Had, had she run into Jesus before was there some encounter On the streets there of Galilee, forgiveness came first, and then her affection and love was a fruit thereof. Also, we got to make sure we're seeing this clear. Jesus is not teaching that we should sin more so that we can love him more. I mean, it should seem pretty obvious, right? But, but some people might draw this conclusion, and they have throughout the course of redemptive history. Hey, big debt, big love, little debt, little love. If I want to love Jesus big, guess i got to go out and do some big sinning. Wherever the gospel is rightly preached... You're going to get this kind of heresy. You're going to get this misunderstanding, this warping of the, the truth of the gospel of Jesus' words. Jesus is not saying that in order to love me a lot, you've got to make a stench as much as you can here on this side of the sun. Paul says as much in Romans 6, led by the Holy Spirit. Romans 6, 1 and 2, shall we continue to sin so that grace May all the more abound? By no means. Now, friend, if you're using Jesus' grace and forgiveness as a license to sin more, you don't get it. Because she's been forgiven, this woman's not trying to get closer to the line of, of sin and license. Because she's been forgiven, she responds in gratitude, she responds in worship. She responds in service and humility. Her love didn't earn her forgiveness. And her great sin isn't prompting us to go sin bigger either. Verse 49, as we continue to work our way through, we see the dumbfounded response of the crowds. It's actually a pretty insightful question, pretty obvious question. If I were just to say to you, hey, I'll forgive your sins. I hope you'd look at me like I have three heads. It's a bit above your pay grade, Zeb. They hear Jesus forgiving this sinful woman of her many sins. And their natural response to this is, who are you? Who is this? By the way, they're asking this constantly in Luke's gospel, aren't they? Who is this guy? who can even do what only God can do. Because Jesus, God the Son, has the power to forgive sins. You may remember the same response a few uh, months back as Benjamin was preaching through chapter 5 and the kind of the healing of the paralytic guy. Remember the guy that they ripped apart someone's roof and lowered down in front of Jesus? Remember, that's crazy. I always like, who paid for the roof, man? (laughs) Jesus says to him, your sins are forgiven. Everybody's like, whoa, wait a minute, Jesus. Who is this guy? Answer, he's God. He's God the Son. We see this echoed in verse 50 right at the end of Chapter 7, your faith has saved you, not your love, your faith has saved you. Then the Prince of Peace tells her to go in peace. We we see at the end of this account and moving into chapter 8, the same lesson really, just as we like to say here uh, at times, zoomed out. What we have here at the end of chapter 7, this account of this sinful woman forgiven by the grace and mercy of Jesus, is a micro picture of God's grace in the life of one forgiven sinner. And now in chapter 8, it's as if Dr. Luke zooms out the camera lens to see the broader response. We see here that the church, I think here at the beginning of chapter 8, is meant to be a physical demonstration of the fact that Jesus is mighty to save. Mighty to save all sorts of people from all types of different backgrounds. And we get three examples, in addition to the 12 apostles, three, three examples of that in real time. The first is this woman. First time we see her here in Luke's gospel, Mary Magdalene, verse 2. We just get one little line about her, but man, does it pack a punch. Mary, who's following Jesus... Who's serving Jesus? Why? Well, because she who's been forgiven much loves much. Seven demons cast out from her. Remember that the number seven is used regularly in Scripture to, to connote the idea of completion or fulfillment. What's Luke saying about Mary Magdalene? She is, she's got seven demons, she's completely full of darkness. She's entirely, completely controlled by the domain of the enemy. And Jesus, I wish we we had more, don't you, about this story? Jesus delivers her of entire, total demon possession. We see next, a very different kind of example. We meet in chapter 8, verse 3, a woman by the name of Joanna. Now, we've got no, no details here about whether de- demons were also cast out of her or whether she was healed, but she's included in this list of people who were healed or delivered by Jesus. And Joanna comes with a, with a bit of pedigree, doesn't she? I mean, she's the wife of Cusa, King Herod's own household manager. I mean, this woman is a woman of means. This is the very highest echelon of society. So what do we have? We've got women entirely demon-possessed, at the lowest of the low in life. We've got women whose sinful reputations precede them. You probably shouldn't use your imagination too much to imagine perhaps what that may have entailed. And then we've got the crust the upper crust and their response is the same right level ground before jesus she's following him she's been somehow she's encountered jesus we, we don't have much more than that but she's she's following him she's serving him she's supporting him we're going to see joanna again one more time in luke's gospel right at the very end in chapter 24 you know what she's doing well she has the high honor she and mary magdalene it's like they're a they're a duo along with some other women unnamed of going to a certain empty tomb and encountering an angel of god who says he is not here He's risen, and she gets Joanna and Mary Magdalene get the high honor of hearing that first and carrying it to the disciples. Isn't this amazing? She's serving him here. That's what that's, we see her serving, and we see the reward later. And finally, we we meet a third woman. We we don't hear about Susanna anywhere else in Scripture. But we see that her response and those with her was a beautiful response. You see, these women who understood their plight, their infirmity, their sinfulness, and who had received deliverance and forgiveness from Christ the King, out of their gratitude for Him, what'd they do? Well, they served. And verse 3, they gave, didn't they? They provided for him out of their means. Their commitment to Jesus wasn't merely hypothetical or conceptual. No, this this was an entire wholehearted, whole-bodied commitment. Jesus was Lord over their life, over their time, over their gifts. Yes, and their pocketbooks. Amazing. Amazing. Well, that's, that's the what of the picture here, and at the end of Luke 7, the beginning of Luke 8, uh, and what I'd like to do in our remaining time is just identify a few simple points of application. I, I'm, I'm always interested in this. We, we ought to ask ourselves often as we're, as we're in Scripture, how can I not just understand what God's Word is saying to me, but how do I apply this? How do I walk this out and be a doer of this Word, not just a hearer? First application point. I want to pose it by way of a question. Do you believe, I mean, do you really believe that Christ still saves sinners? I mean, don't coast on me. That's a simple question. I get it. But check your heart. Because it can be easy for us who have been following Jesus to, be, to begin, perhaps like Simon, to write people off. Does he know who she is? If he knew who she was, I mean, no way he'd be letting her even get near him. You see, Simon, who I'll remind you, was a Pharisee who knew his Bible Backwards and forwards, better than you or me. First five books of the Pentateuch, memorized. This guy was legit. This guy was as religious as they come. And as knowledge continued to puff up, what what posture did it produce within him? Well, he was looking out at the world, at all those big sinners out there, saying, they're not worthy of God. And me? Well, I don't really need his forgiveness because I'm pretty good myself. Church folk can do this, friends. And we get a warning here from Jesus himself. Stop it. Last week, I said and I meant with the authority of the word of God that We ought not, as the church of Jesus Christ, to become bosom buddies with the world. Sin, this very sin that Jesus died for, is grievous in God's eyes. It's Pride Month. And we ought not to be proud about that. That's true. You know what also is true? Smug Self-righteous Christians ought not to with crossed arms write off sinners, even, follow me, big sinners, so as to almost block their way to the Lord. Is Jesus mighty to save or isn't he? That's the question. Is the arm of the Lord too short to save this prodigal sinner? Simon thought it was. And we dare not, friends, in our right response, in our right grief to the sin that's around us, presume to sit on God's throne and withhold forgiveness. That's his job, not yours, not mine. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. And here we get demon filled, demon riddled Mary Magdalene, full of the devil. She's following Jesus. We get Joanna. Wife of the household manager of Herod the king. And everybody in between. This is a, a, a cross section, friends, of what church is meant to look like. The highest of the high and the lowest of the low. And the lowest common denominator, the glue that unites us together is that we understand that we are all in the eyes of a perfect and holy God, great debtors. Don't write off that nephew. Don't write off that child And one that you've been praying for for all these years and you just can't see it. It's God's sovereign prerogative to deal with them on a heart level. We ought not to be Simon the Pharisees crossing our arms and withholding or becoming a stumbling block to the desperate needy sinners around us. Jesus is mighty to save. By the way, before we move on, um, we get a, get a word from 1 Corinthians 6.11. I think it's a beautiful word. Just real, I'll remind you of this. Such were some of you. There's a list, but we won't go into it now. It's the sexually immoral, the, the drunkards, the revilers, the, those who practice homosexuality, a list of grievous sins, and then Paul moves to a hard stop and says, Psst, such were some of you. Look around. Do you deserve to be here? I don't. Application number two, I think we must resist the urge to compare our own righteousness to those around us. That's what Simon was doing, right? We talk about this all the time. We go, norm-referencing our own righteousness with that of those in the world, our little sphere or our circle around us. What do, you, what do we ought to do instead? Well, I like how Jerry Bridges said it. We ought to preach the gospel to ourselves daily. Well, I know the gospel. Yeah. And you need to re-remember it every day. Preaching the gospel to yourself every day will remind you of what your sin truly is, what it means, and the marvelous, matchless, incomparable cost of your own salvation that came at the blood of the son of god remember grace generates gratitude you no know, it's funny i don't know if it's funny or that's the right word but the longer that i walk with the lord i've observed a seemingly backwards thing uh, start to occur in the in the church it, it's it's so strange. Oftentimes as we're addressing sin, which we ought to do if we're reading our Bibles, among the company of the godly, as God's people gather to worship, we ought to confess sins, we ought to repent often. And often as the Spirit of God is working and convicting in the lives of His children, this weird thing begins to happen where people who are seemingly brazen sinners. People who are just walking way out of alignment, just glaring sinner in their lives, seem relatively unaffected by the message of the gospel, by the conviction and the sting of sin as it comes. But you know, who ends up coming forward so very often for prayer or calling and pulling me aside? It's those sweet, Faithful saints who have been walking with the Lord for such a long time. It's almost like their their tolerance for their own sin has become razor thin and they're bothered by these things that are seemingly insignificant. The tears in their eyes, they're acknowledging, oh, Jesus, how I need you the mark of spiritual maturity. But your tolerance for sin becomes less and less and less. I think of my own life. I've been following the Lord for 20 years now. And I think of myself as a baby Christian when I first came to the Lord. I am a much more godly man now by the grace of God and by the, the power of the Holy Spirit and His sanctifying work than I was 20 years ago. I know Jesus much Deeper, I follow him much more diligently than I did then. And it's like backwards. I thought I was awesome back then. I am so aware, day by day, the closer that I walk with the Lord, of the sin that so easily entangles me. Are you a big debtor or a little debtor? The question isn't only how much sin. The question is, how rightly do you see that sin? And how grateful are you for the salvation that Jesus has offered to you? I can barely make it through a refrain of amazing grace without just losing it. It's awful. My eyes leak and my nose drips. And it's half the reason why I sit up front so you can't see my tear-stained face. We sang earlier today. Grace greater than all of our sin. Dark is the stain that we cannot hide. I can't can't hide it. What can avail to wash it away? Look, there is flowing a crimson tide. The blood of Jesus. Brighter than snow you may be today. I bet this sinful woman would have sang that song with gusto. How about this one? We sang this one a moment ago. His mercy is more. What riches of kindness he lavished on us. His blood was the payment. His life was the cost. We stood, listen, we stood neath a debt we could never afford. Luke 7. Our sins, they are many. But his mercy is more. Perhaps now, even in this moment, you should make that your prayer. Lord, give me a greater awareness of my sins, of my wretchedness in your sight, so that I can learn to love you with greater affection. What a beautiful prayer. It flows from this very passage. Last thing. You know, love for Christ can take many forms, but doing the bare minimum is not one of them. We note here this many sins of omission. You know, there's the sins that you do against God, the sins of commission, but there's also the sins that you fail to do, that you, the things you should before God. We note that Simon responds to Jesus with such indifference, such a cold heart. He does the bare minimum, doesn't he, for Jesus? But then we see these sinful wretches who are following Him, who are serving Him, who are anointing His feet, who are weeping in gratitude because of His love, who are providing for Him out of their means to see the kingdom of God marshaled throughout the ends of the earth. Do you find yourself, Christian? Doing the bare minimum for Jesus? Perhaps, I don't know, I'm just. Perhaps it's because you fail to grasp how bad you really are and how good you have it because Christ bled and died for your debt. Forget pouring out your alabaster flask of ointment. Sometimes we here in the the fat, lazy Christian West can barely master up enough gumption to open our Bibles. Or carve out a few minutes for prayer. Forget weeping at the feet of Christ with affection and gratitude. Sometimes we're not even really sure we're going to sing that song as the body gathers for corporate worship. On the Lord's Day. Because you know. We really don't prefer that tune. Really? What is that? The indifference. Friends. That comes. From our lackluster service. For Christ. At times. I think if we're honest. Can be pointed into an internal diagnosis. Of how. Clearly we see our great need and the one who has forgiven us from it. Whatever form your service takes, don't punt. Don't do the bare minimum like Simon. He saved you for good works which he prepared in advance For the sinful woman here, that looks like worship. That looks like affection. That looks like spending time at the feet of Jesus. For these women here at the beginning of chapter 8, that looks like financial provision. It looks like service of time and, and dedication. I don't know what that looks like for you. but Gosh, I hope it's on your calendar somewhere this week. May we be people at Friendship Community Church with a faith that's alive because living faith bears fruit. It's hungry. It grows and abides. May we be people who can't wait to get back here to sing the praises of Christ again. May we be people who don't even know what to do with the amount of resource that are, that, are, that are just being given to see the kingdom of God move forward in powerful ways. May hey, we'd be people who can't even figure out how, how to... So many people want to serve. It's like a problem. You've got too many people to serve in children's ministry, Marley. What are we going to do about it? I think we see, I'm just appealing to you once more, As a brother in Christ, and as a pastor who loves and sees in my own heart, these truths take effect. May we be people who understand that our sins, they were many. His mercy is more. So I'm just going to serve him with all I got in the time he gives me here. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for these gospel reminders. Lord, that your arm is not too short to save. That there's none who have waded into sin so dark, so grievous that you can't deliver, you can't restore, you can't save, Lord. And we say with trembling lips, such were some of us. We say everyone here who has tasted of the goodness of your salvation and forgiveness in Christ. Lord, our debt, we could never pay. Thank you for Jesus. Now would you release us to serve him with time and talents and treasure, with whole hearts. Do it, Lord. Do it here at Friendship Community Church, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.